0: Welcome to From City to the World. I'm your host, Vince Boudreau, the president of the City College of New York. From City to the World is a show about how the work that we're doing at City College matters to people across the city and throughout the world. We'll discuss the practical application of our research in solving real-world issues like poverty, homelessness, mental health challenges, affordable housing, and disparities in health care and immigration. Today, we are broadcasting from WHCR's event space as we salute Black History Month, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, I'm happy to have not just my first guest, Dr. Vanessa Valdez, in the studio, but members of her class. We're happy to have you all here today for our second broadcast before live studio audience. According to AfricanAmericanHistoryMonth.gov, Black History Month was started by the legendary Carter G. Woodson, who founded the Association for the study of Negro life and history. In 1925, he launched Negro History Week to raise awareness of African-Americans' contributions to civilization. The event was first celebrated during a week in February in 1926, and that encompassed the birthdays of both Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass. By the time of Woodson's death in 1950, Negro History Week had become a central part of African American life and a substantial progress had been made in bringing more Americans to appreciate the celebration. At mid-century, mayors of cities nationwide issued proclamations noting this Negro History Week. The celebration was expanded to a month in 1976, the nation's bicentennial. Fact, Gerald Ford urged Americans, quote, to seize the opportunity to honor the too often neglected accomplishments of black Americans in every area of endeavor throughout our history. End quote. So that year, 50 years after the first celebration, the association held the first African American History Month. By the time, by this time, the entire nation had come to recognize the importance of black history and the drama of the American story. And today, to help us celebrate Black History Month, is the new director of the Black Studies Program here at City College, Dr. Vanessa Valdez. This semester, she's teaching children's literature in Spanish, and these are the students who are in the studio with us today. Um, Give yourself a shout-out, students. (laughs) Good. So, Dr. Valdez, welcome to From City to the World. Um, I'd like to welcome the students I already have. Before we get started... um, I'd like to tell the listeners a little bit about you and your career at City College and before City College. So Dr. Valdez holds a BA from Yale University in English and a PhD from Vanderbilt University in Spanish and Portuguese. She's associate professor in Spanish and Portuguese at, in City College's Division of Humanities and the Arts. Her research interests include comparative studies of black cultural productions throughout the Americas, including the Caribbean and Brazil. She's the author of the critically acclaimed Diasporic Blackness About the Life and Times of Harlem Renaissance historian, writer, and activist Arturo Alfonso Schaumburg. That's a name we should all be familiar with in this neighborhood. Um, her, books, her other books include Ocean's Daughter, The Search for Womanhood in the Americas, a 2015 finalist for the Albert J. Raboteau Prize for the Best Book in African relig- Africana Religions, and she also wrote Let Spirit Speak, and the future is now. And and let me just say, Diasporic Blackness has been out for really only a couple of weeks, and it has gotten quite a buzz. And and so we are lucky to have her both as the new director of our Black Studies program at City College and here as my guest in the studio today. Dr. Valdez, welcome. Thank you. So let's talk a little bit, just to start, by talking about your scholarship, the work that you've done. Um, This is Black History Month, and it just so happens you've recently published this Very well received book on the iconic figure Arturo Schomburg. Can you tell us what motivated you to to make him the subject of your latest
1: book? Yeah. So I was born and raised here in New York City. Um, My parents. I'm of Puerto Rican heritage, Black Puerto Rican heritage in particular. And Arturo Schomburg is a figure that uh, some Puerto Ricans knew that he was born in Puerto Rico, but not many. Mm -hmm. Um, And oftentimes his blackness was elided. And so I first found out about him when I was in college and I knew nothing of the Schomburg Center, which was shocking to me because I was, again, born and raised here in the city. And it just kind of stuck. And as my work is on the African diaspora and Afro-Latinidad, as Afro-Latinx studies continues to grow, for me it was he's the fundamental figure that most people didn't know enough about. Mm -hmm. And so when I started my research on him, the perception of Arturo Schomburg is it was incidental. He was born in Puerto Rico, and then they talk about the Harlem Renaissance. And there's like, he was 50 years old <laughs> when the New Negro Anthology was published. So for me, it was, how, who was he from zero to 50? And what I discovered in my research is that he migrates at 17 from Puerto Rico. First of all, he's born in the only free black maroon community established in Puerto Rico to a woman who was from the Danish West Indies, a free black woman, and to a Puerto Rican of German descent, hence the Uh Schomburg, whose family had been there from the 1820s. And so we already have a a, a, a narrative about Caribbean history right there, right? Uh He comes at 17 and immediately is involved with the fight for Cuban and Puerto Rican independence from Spain. And so that goes against the narrative of Oh, he's for, you know, it was incidental that he was Puerto Rican. No, in fact, it was critical to who he was. He's also a prominent Freemason. He was initiated into a Mason lodge that was Afro-Cuban out in Brooklyn. And so he was actually more famous within Masonic circles than he was for his collection. And mm-hmm. so the collection was bought by the Carnegie Corporation in 1926. By that point, everyone knew his private collection in brooklyn in his home was notorious and so the story is that his wife at one point looked and said we have to do something about this Um, because there were piles of books and pamphlets at any given moment he was collecting Mm -hmm. always and so they sent out someone to assess the collection Uh, it was assessed at ten thousand dollars even then they thought that that was a low price but He was happy with it, and they bought it on behalf of the New York Public Library for the 135th Street branch, which now is known as the Schomburg Center. So for me, researching him was also going into the narratives about the New York Puerto Rican community, about blackness within the larger Puerto Rican community, about imaginings of the Puerto Rican nation here in New York City. Oftentimes, when we think about migrations and emigrations, we dis- we, there's a tendency to discount um, immigrants, right, or migrants and how they think about their islands and how they think about their nations. And mm-hmm. the reality is that for both Cuba and Puerto Rico, like in many places, the imaginings of those nations happened outside of that, that land. Yeah. And so oftentimes, again, those populations, you know, as you well know, as a political scientist in your own research, right? Like where the role of activism and the site of, those, acti- of, of that, those activist movements and in correlation to homelands and what is home and what is an origin point. So all of those things are why I wrote this book. Yeah. <laughs> so pick any of those. <laughs> no,
0: no, that's fantastic. I, 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 uh, I mean, you're right. It often takes someone to step outside their nation mm. To, to see you know what does it mean to be Puerto Rican or African American or from the Caribbean and where you know where does these ideas come from? I want to ask you what did it mean in that moment mm. as 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 people are developing a sense of their place in America? Mm. You know we you know three hundred years ago people had a sense of themselves as residents of neighborhoods mm. or of villages and the idea of communities that were big transcendental filled uh, space from border to border, mm-hmm. these were kind of just emerging. And then you've got this guy mm-hmm. who has, uh, your word, notorious collection of literature and history and letters mm-hmm. where people could come. Mm-hmm. And and, and it, it seems to me that a collection like that around a man like that mm-hmm. becomes a kind of forge in which national identity can be, can be struck, can be built. Is that, what was it like to, if, if, if you were walking into his house yeah. in those days? And-
1: so what's interesting about him and one of the things that I argue in my book is that, in fact, again, he when we talk about blackness and the definition of blackness, right, we are in Harlem, New York City. It has always been a site of multiple blacknesses. It has always been multilingual, right? So I just referenced that there were Cuban and Puerto Ricans here in New York City. These were Afro-Cuban and Afro-Puerto Ricans who were often exiles because of their political activities. And so that is not a narrative of New York City that we think of, right? So you have that. In the spaces that he's in, he is surrounded by prominence, i.e. W.E.B. Du Bois, Elaine Locke, He knows Carter Woodson. Carter Woodson is based in D.C. At one point, Mr. Schomburg becomes the president of the American Negro Academy, which was the first intellectual uh, learned organization of which Du Bois had been a previous president that's based in D.C. So he knows Carter Woodson, right? He's uh, part of this whole network of collectors. He's also not by himself. That's also um, this idea that one does anything by themselves is is a fallacy in that every step of the way, he's always with other collectors. So um, when he is uh, working with the anti-colonial, like pro-independence movements, they're there they're collecting those men and women are collecting and teaching each other um, because they couldn't access schools he doesn't have a form he has a secondary education and saint thomas and then comes here so he's not college educated yet he's surrounded at one point by all phds mm-hmm. um, so those documents are in spanish and french and english In every step, he's collecting always in Spanish and French and English. And so it's not one singular national consciousness, actually. It's more the reason that I use the word diasporic in my title is to to underscore the multiple resonances of blackness. And in every step, wherever he's going, he's always talking about and writing about Spanish-speaking populations who had been previously enslaved in the Americas, mm-hmm. right? So oftentimes in the United States, we use the word America as if it's just the United States. And so he is also re- like reminding his colleagues, as I do with my students, the idea of the Americas being hemispheric, mm-hmm. right? And so challenging this, simp- this, this flattened sense of black equals just US from the south, right? Uh-huh. So even at the time in Harlem, right, we already have the great migration has happened, right? right? We also have, uh, migrants from the British West Indies coming, right. so again, we already have all of these different kinds of blacknesses, yeah right, and yet we don 't think about that at times yeah. you know?
0: did he did he have to did he have to advocate was that a p- contentious point in his day or 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 not really
1: so my, in my book i don 't go into um I try to stay on task, and so did not <laughs> include uh gossip right okay. or just things like or I was trying to stay really focused on what I could prove. Right, right. I could have also included correspondence where there were hurt feelings. Yeah. Right, and so um, as an archivist and as a as the, the known as one of the premier archivists of his time, uh, there were books that were produced because of his collection, and they didn't necessarily have an acknowledgement section. And so there were times when he did feel slighted. Right. Hmm. Um, At the same time, when I was writing my book, I was talking with, working with the archivists not only at the Schomburg Center, um, I worked with with Sarah Ponte upstairs in uh, the Dominican Studies Institute, also the archivist that was at Fisk University, where he was for a year. And so all of those women, right, they were all mostly, primarily women I was interfacing with, they all said, well, this is our personality as well, Mm -hmm. that we like staying in the background, right? We don't need to be up front. and so that was an interesting tension as well because while he was providing the source material for books he wouldn't necessarily get the credit right and yet at times like he wanted that credit Mm -hmm. so yeah the other thing about him is we have no recordings of how he sounded and Um. so we only have a visual and i always make that claim with my students i say well Race and our interpretation of race is not with solely within the visual realm, right? right? It's also how folks sound. And so if this is a man who, again, for the first 17 years of his life was in the Caribbean, going back and forth between, probably, um, between Puerto Rico and St. Thomas, which means we have at least two languages. So he's already multilingual. Then he's carrying some kind of accent probably when he's here that is not identifiably as from the u.s south or from the british west indies Uh and so how does that affect how he was he was treated and also how he reacted and was um, received by people Uh we can only imagine that
0: Uh dr valdez i'd like to pivot for a second because you have i'm you know i'm thrilled about this but but you've recently been named the director of our Black Studies program here at City College. and I know you've got um, big plans for the program. Um, you know, short-term plans, medium-term plans, long-term plans. Yeah. I want to speak about the immediate future. you come into this job, and I wonder, what do you think the role of Black Studies should be for the young men and women who take it up as a major, and what do you think the role of the program should be across the university, and how does, how does this thinking govern the way you'd like to shape the program under your leadership?
1: So for me, there is no success with regards to the mission of City College without the success of our program. Mm -hmm. And so um, you talked about our immediate plans. So we are planning this year marks the 50th anniversary of young men and women, black and brown men and women in this city that took over this college to demand a curricula that looked like them, to demand faculty that looked like them. And so one of the things that we are doing in April is we are having a series of events in honor of them. We are inviting members of the class of 69 and 70 to participate in discussions, to talk with our current students. Uh, And our our program was birthed from that takeover, right? And so both ours and Latin American and Latino studies. And so for me, our success means one, making sure that our academic offerings are, are uh, demanding enough for our students. We Everyone who teaches in our program, including those who have taught in the past, always comment on how engaging our students are and also how brilliant our students are in the Black Studies program. And so preparing them academically for whatever they want to do in life, also highlighting the resources that this school has in terms of scholarships, fellowships, working myself uh, introducing myself to folks across the college um, Akasha Solis and the Colin Powell School um, whose work works with the fellowships that they have there who are, that are open to all uh, majors for them for her to come and talk about hey what are you doing right study abroad like making sure that our students know that they can have funded programs and and study abroad participating in that um, I want to make sure that our students get the most out of this school. And part of that is highlighting everything that you have in in this school. So um, yeah, so then they can then be prepared to go out. Also for those who want to do doctoral work, right? Like highlighting Mellon May's foundation and that that, uh, scholarship opportunity, the city college fellowships, right? Highlighting like the CUNY pipeline down at the graduate center. Just anything and everything that we already have in place to know that our students are at the center of the program. They are the heart of their of, of this program and that they are who I am focused on. And then our faculty who spend time and energy mentoring our students, um, celebrating them as well.
0: You, you mentioned, I just wanna make sure people understand the resources that you're referencing, the CUNY Pipeline. it's a pretty powerful program. Could you talk a little bit about it?
1: So the CUNY Pipeline program is one that was just written about, actually. Uh, I believe in in the Chronicle of Higher Education. Mm-hmm. Um, so Dr. Hem- Herman Bennett has ident has. Structure the program whereby students who self-identify as wanting to pursue doctoral studies in their ju well they can actually they can apply earlier than this um, in their sophomore year even but in their junior year there's a one-page application I believe the email address is www so um, dot so com I believe. Um, but please don't quote me on that. It might be .edu. I apologize.
0: Probably, probably, go- probably <laughs> Google probably it. Google the CUNY pipeline program yes. is probably the best way to do and it. And
1: it will come up. Um, and so it's a one-page um, application process, and once you get in, they interview you, and once you get in, not only do they give you... They provide resources. They provide mentoring. Um, you can Id- identify a faculty mentor. You get uh, monies to take the GRE, they give you practice for the GRE, and so, and then they do workshops that are simulating the graduate student experience. And so each year they have a cohort of students that provide support for each other, and then they also help with application process. It's an amazing, amazing program. I've had two students who have gone through that who are also simultaneously Mellon Mays Undergraduate Fellows. Um, And one of them is in is doing her PhD at Penn State now. Another one is working with the Studio Museum. Um, at the moment, I just had my third one who wasn't technically my student, but like I claim him anyway. He's just gotten into the PhD program at, uh, a PhD program at uh, the Graduate Center. And so we see success, right? We yeah. see the kind of involvement where mentoring, involved mentoring on the part of the faculty Um, And the step-by-step, you are not alone. You don't have to do this alone uh, in terms of getting a Ph.D.
0: Yeah, and the message really is this, I think. we, You can't go to a college campus in the country without... Reading some document that outlines their commitment to diversifying the profession, the academic leadership, but we need to build the pipeline, and and so that means if and and I guarantee one of the reasons the pipeline doesn't get built is there are students walking around on this campus on other campuses who have the capacity, they maybe have the interest, um, but nobody said to them, this is for you, and and so this is a program. That says to CUNY students who are interested in being involved in higher education, teaching the next generation that this is something for you. Um, so I'm glad we got a chance to unpack it. I've got one more question before we um, before we take our break. And, and, and it you know, you have an advantage in being the director of a black studies program at City college in Harlem. Like you are, you, you are, you are neck deep in institutions, history, uh, activists, scholars. It's hard to imagine a better place to be in your new job. And so I want to, you know, what do you think about the relationship between us here at CCNY and all the different resources out there?
1: I'm so incredibly excited to build on relationships that, again, started, predate my appointment to this position. So in writing the book on Mr. Schomburg, of course I spent time at the Schomburg Center. um, So I've gotten to know a few of their curators. um, And so that's been an amazing opportunity. And then as I've just said, I have students who work in these, not only in in this community, but also in these organizations, right? And so now I see myself as a face of the Black Studies program. And so wherever I go, I can talk about and build on, on behalf of my students, those relationships. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it's also important, again, our faculty, many of our faculty members, you mentioned uh, previously the a previous guest of yours was Linda Vigrosa, who's in journalism. She's a, in the Department of Media and Communications Arts, the head of the journalism program, and who, who teaches courses for the Black Studies program, right? Mm-hmm. And so. She's doing an amazing job, right? So many of our faculty, we have someone who she, uh, Marsha Jean Charles works with Brotherhood um, Sister Soul, which is on 143rd, I believe, which I live not there, but in the area, perhaps. And so just by virtue of, of personal relationships, right, I get to get to know better what everyone is doing and then strengthen and perhaps create opportunities again for our students, whether it be paid internships, perhaps employment opportunities, highlight what everyone is doing and say, hey, this is this is what's happening, right? Wow. So I'm really excited. I mean, I'm excited already to, to highlight even the, the Apollo has an amazing education program and I love promoting them to our students, you know, so just you're right like we're in the heart of it and yeah. i love i love being here and pushing our students out saying yes this is what we offer and also in collaboration right. you can experience new york city in this way
0: what are the opportunities i i mean so uh, the 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 listenership to this program includes city college but it's not limited to city college we're reaching people um close by and one of the things that that you do very well is is programming and and so if if I'm if I'm not a city college if I'm not a student at City College or an academic, um, what should I know about the opportunities available to me in terms of the programming? And you know what should I look for in your program over the next year?
1: So we will have programs both here on site on City College campuses as on the City College campus itself, as well as hopefully off site with new and developing relationships with community partners. <laughs> so. If you are interested, uh, please, you can email um, blackstudies at ccny.cuny.edu. We will add you to our newsletter, and then you will find out about where these things are taking place.
0: Okay, excellent. So we are going to take a quick break, um, and when we return, we will have Jeffrey Eaton. He is the president of the NAACP's Mid-Manhattan branch, and he'll join myself and Professor Valdez in conversation. So we'll be right back. Thanks. (laughs) Thanks. <laughs> like what you're hearing? Please make sure to subscribe on your podcast app of choice to From City to the World. And also iTunes listeners, please make sure to rate and review to help new listeners find the show. But I mean, come on, be a little kind, would you? Welcome back to From City to the World. Joining us today in our salute to Black History Month is Mr. Jeffrey Eaton. He is the, currently the president of the NAACP Mid-Manhattan Branch. Um, but he has done so much more in his life. I'd like to tell you a little bit about it. He's best known as the chief of staff to legendary retired United States Congress member, the Honorable Charles B. Rangel, who I should add currently is serving at City College as our state's person in residence. That's a position we created especially for him, and we're thrilled to have him on campus. In this capacity, now talking to about Mr. Mr. Eaton again, As Congressman Rangel's chief of staff, he oversaw the day-to-day management of the Washington, D.C. and New York offices and was Congressman Rangel's designee to a number of important boards, including the New York Empowerment Zone, the Upper Manhattan Empowerment Zone, the Harlem Community Development Corporation, and the West Harlem Development Corporation Incorporated. Prior to his service as Chief of Staff for the Congressman, Mr. Eaton amassed over 20 years of experience in New York City government, holding several positions like Deputy Public Advocate for Community Affairs for the first elected public advocate, Mark Green. In recognition of his exemplary record of public service, Mr. Eaton has received an unprecedented six NAACP um, New York State Conference Awards, including the first ever Medgar Wiley Evers NAACP New York State Medal of Freedom Award. Currently, as president of the NAACP Mid-Manhattan Branch, he continues to work the work of the largest and most actively engaged civil rights organization in America. With branches throughout the country, the NAACP was founded on February 12, 1909, making this year its 110th birthday. The Mid-Manhattan branch has experienced a 50-year history and has consistently been recognized on a local, state, and national level as one of the association's premier branches. Mr. Eaton, welcome to From City to the World. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah. And I enjoyed the first half. Good. I <laughs> know, yeah, good. This is the second time we are broadcasting in front of a live studio audience. We have Professor Valdez's um, Spanish Literature for Children class here, and we welcome all of you to the studio audience. Um, so as you know we've been talking in the first half uh, to Dr. Vanessa Valdez the new director of our Black Studies Program and I'd like to turn the question that I asked her around uh, to you Um, I asked her what it means as a program director to have such close access to the history and the institutions and the organizations of Harlem so I'd like to ask you as the leader of one of those most important organizations and someone who is himself an institution in Harlem what it means to have a Black Studies Department in your neighborhood
2: let me first say, Ashe, not about this. I'll offer it to you. Um, I think the question you want to ask is, "What if we did not have a Black Studies program okay. at City College?" All right. And um, and I think that's the reality that we want to talk about today. Now, this year we're going to be celebrating the 100th anniversary of the Harlem Renaissance, mm-hmm. the 400th anniversary of slavery, mm-hmm. which started Wall Street, the 85th anniversary of the Apollo Theater and the 110th anniversary of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, which was founded for people of all colors. And if you think about all of the hidden figures when we talk about history, and one thing about history, to know where you're going, you have to know where you come from. And that's the importance of having a Black Studies program, because it's not just a Black Studies program for black people only. It's for people of all color, because we all generated from the continent of Africa in some way or not. And, and, um, and that's really what, society is all about. How do we appreciate the contributions and so many docu- undocumented contributions that we don't know about? These hidden figures of history that in between the Harlem Renaissance, if you just took, uh, did a, story, a study on the Harlem Renaissance, all amazing figures that have contributed. We don't even know who they are. Yeah. We don't even know who they are. They're not documented, but we're going to be finding that out because this, programs like this helps us find who we are and who those who came before us, and it's important. Yeah, yeah. I, you
0: mentioned a couple of times the Harlem Renaissance. I, I can't resist a plug. Mm-hmm. If you don't know about our Langston Hughes Festival, it happens yeah, every year on the campus of City College. The the giants of African and African American literature cross our stage, read their work, and receive the Langston Hughes Medal. Um, and I you know I have seen Chinua Achebe on our stage. Um, I Zadie Smith last year. Um, just really a terrific cultural event. Of course, that, that, that award ceremony caps it, but it's a couple of days of really deep celebration of the literary aspect of the yes. Harlem Renaissance. So if you don't know about it, look it up on our website and, and come up to campus for it because it is a, it is a couple of days of culture not to be missed.
1: Can I just say also that that has now under the auspices of the Black Studies Program. Just want to say that. Oh, fantastic. Yes. (laughs) So So let
0: me ask you, what are your plans for the next one? Um,
1: We are gathering. Our committee is gathering in a few weeks. Um, We have already selected our next honoree. We are planning something, Dr. Boudreaux. We will be letting you know about press conferences. All of this will be announced in the forthcoming weeks.
0: I'll translate that. She's not going to tell us who the next honoree is. Mr. Eaton, I'd like to talk about politics for a sure, little bit. Sure, sure. Um, this has been a very, um, I would say, rough couple of years for civil rights, and I wonder if you'd give us a bird's-eye view of where you and, and, and the NAACP think politics is going, particularly in relation to questions of civil rights in America.
2: Well, that's going to be a long conversation, We but got time. I'll try to be brief. Um, we just witnessed yesterday the election of a, a special election of a public advocate, uh, very important, uh, that position. And I'm so happy that Jemani Williams was elected because that's really an example of activism. Not only to be ready to march on the streets and sit down and lay on and die in, but to legislate advocacy on a legislative level. Because the most important part of our civil rights now, we have to go to Washington, we have to go to Albany, we have to go to City Hall, we have to legislate and we have to vote. The state of politics right now across this country, is in turmoil as far as direction that people are going. The country is basically split in half, um, but basically we all have the same issues. You know, we're poor. We're looking for jobs and employment. We're not educated. Uh, healthcare disparities are very large and wide. Healthcare is 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 still a problem throughout this country. We have so many people on Medicare and Medicaid because we don't have Obamacare and other different kinds of states or Affordable Care Act. So there's so many issues like education and disparities in education. Um, and then we have people fighting against each other, yeah. charters versus public, um, you know, communities versus communities around the same issues that affect us all as a community, which is why we should be American and come together. Uh, we're optimistic that there is, we're, we're training a next generation of young people, next leader. We call it the next gen program. We want to get them activated and motivated. But also educate them about their history, who who they where they come from, who they are, and where they're going. Um, so that they can take the reins um, and move forward and push through a lot of the racism that we are dealing with today. And that's a good news story. We have more young people running for office in the history of this nation. We have more teachers running for office in the history of this nation. We are seeing young people getting elected to have, uh, People 30 and 29 year old running for governor and throughout the states and throughout the country, that's a very positive direction that we're going in. And they're really energized, and we just want to give them the direction and the history and the studies to help them nurture their, their skills. So they're able to go out there and understand what the fight's all about, what Jim Crow is all about, where they come from, and why it's still lingering on today. You mentioned
0: in passing, I want to just like with the CUNY Pipeline program, the next gen program. What age group are you targeting there? And is there an well, opportunity? We're
2: targeting um, generally people between 21 and 40. Okay. But we do take some 50s and 60s in. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> but that's really the age, because um, that's really the age where you're really excited and motivated. And we're training them in. Robert rules of orders, the Uh constitution and bylaws of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, Uh how to advocate, how to get in touch with your elected officials, who is your elected official, why is it important to vote in every election from the local school board Uh to community boards um, to the highest of the land Um, and what the importance of advocating on the particular issues. We don't have permanent friends, we don't have permanent enemies, we have permanent interests Uh and those interests is around our six game changers where we focus on is civic engagement, education, economic development, sustainability, health, criminal justice, public safety reform, and youth engagement. And mm-hmm. those areas we have focusing around the country. We have 2200 branches around the country in seven different regions. This region has to be region two, which takes in Pennsylvania, New England, Delaware area, Connecticut, New Jersey, New York. And um, it's exciting. And we have these next-generation programs going around the country. Uh, New York actually came in second place in membership,
0: no.
2: uh, recruiting next-gen members to, to the NAACP. NAACP and organizations like the NAACP, is important that you join and get involved with organizations mm-hmm. uh, to do the work. And, and, and you'll find it so healing when you can contribute and make a difference, and that's where we're headed.
0: So if someone in this room or or within earshot of this program wants to participate
2: in that program, what do they do? How do they find out about it? Oh, they just call the, they just go to the website, naacpmidmanhattan, one word, dot org. Mm -hmm. N-A-C-P, mid Manhattan dot org, one word. Or just Google N-A-C-P. Okay, all
0: right. (laughs) Any information will be
2: there. We're easy to find.
0: All right, so Mm -hmm. college students looking for the next thing? This might be one of them. Um. So I want to talk to you a little bit about you know the Obama presidency was was heralded as a as an absolute landmark in mm-hmm. in, in African American history and it you know it was an incredible period of time in this country but I think it also revealed some of the underlying racial tensions mm-hmm. and 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 certainly produced a backlash that we that we're living through right now as, as you reflect on the triumph of that election, mm-hmm. and then what's happened afterward. How do you assess the relationship between progress and and backlash in America?
2: I look at it this way: I um, when President Obama won. Everybody was caught off surprise, right? Mm-hmm. And at that time, there was a very active bro- voter suppression campaign going on throughout this country to stop that type of thing from happening, mm-hmm. so that he would not be elected. It's, it's tough having a woman get elected president of the United States. Because of racism and, and, and gender inequality, and I think that when he did get one, he won because of young people getting involved. I think the parents may have voted for the other person, young people voted for President Obama. Yeah. So there were fights in the house, you know, and you know, across the dinner table, you know, why those issues come about, mm-hmm. and I think that the disparities and the racism has shown his ugly head in so many ways because Obama did get elected. Mm-hmm. And because he wasn't, he was a very good president, and very great first lady, Michelle Obama, two brilliant individuals, well educated, and well oiled, and ready to lead this nation, and yeah. to show that we can lead if we are elected, we can be involved, we can contribute, and it's you know, and some of them, What happened was people took their sheets off their head, mm-hmm. and so we today we do have uh, racism in, in the in the boardrooms yep. of the five hundred fortune companies. We have racism. Um, in our townships, in our mm-hmm. board of elections, places of where people would go and vote. Mm-hmm. And vote suppression is a real, real thing right now. Yeah. Here, but your know, NACP is on the ground, we're winning, we're winning. You know, we won some major um, battles in Texas, we won some major battles in Alabama. Um, North Carolina, we won there, and you know, now you hear about a re, uh, maybe you have to have another reelection. For that congressional seat where they stole it mm-hmm. um, and they cheated and, um, and those kind of policies are going to still continue to happen if we don't get out and vote, mm-hmm. if we don't participate. Yeah. Yeah. Your vote does count.
0: Yeah. There is a measure moving through Congress right now mm-hmm. to try to return to some of the principles of the Voting Rights Act, which was allowed to, to lapse. Uh, yes. Are you optimistic about this, this measure?
2: No, I think we're we'll going to get it done. Yeah. Um, we have a very strong leadership now. You know, we have the Democrats have control of the House, but it's not just the Democrats have control of the House. We have good strong leadership. Yeah. Uh, Speaker Pelosi and her team and Collins and Meeks and others and Hakeem Jeffries. Man, they they're just really ready to push forward. They understand what's going on at stake. And it is not about black people and latino people. It's about American people. Yeah. Us coming together as a country. This is the greatest country in the world. And we should not be having these kind of discussions right now. I agree.
0: You mentioned, uh, Mr. Eaton, that there is there's a new leadership. There's, and, and we, even now, looking at the presidential race of 2020, there is a, you know, a more energized, younger, more diverse mm-hmm. uh, crop of candidates that have stepped forward to, to, to vie for the leadership of this country. And I'm not going to ask you to endorse or prognosticate. If I couldn't get Dr. (laughs) Valdez to tell us who she's going to honor, I know I'm not going to get you to endorse a candidate on there. But I do want to talk about electoral strategy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in American politics, because we're largely a two-party system, the thought is during the primaries you run to your base, Mm -hmm. and then in the general election everybody tries to capture those undecided voters in the middle, and that kind of moves the parties closer and closer together this feels like a little bit of a different moment mm-hmm. um, when unarticulated voices are, 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 have, have actually come into the public sphere and are starting to make claims about what is necessary in our politics. And I, so, so I, I, my, I guess my question is this, do you think ultimately given where we're at right now, we're gonna see an electoral strategy where we're still trying to capture those central undecided voices or are there positions to be staked out that have not really been artic- articulated in our politics that, that that may represent a winning strategy?
2: I think you're right on both. I think okay. there's going to be a, a collaboration and combination of the two strategies working together. The um, strategies around issues, right? strategies around clean water in Michigan. Mm-hmm. strategies around there is no global warming, right? Right. strategies around uh, clean air. You know, my father passed away um, this past Saturday um, from an illness called COPD. Yeah. They call it secondhand smoking, but it's a very terrible disease, yeah. and very terrible. It's so, sort of a slow death, but there's so many diseases like that that are affecting us right now and all our families, and no one's focusing on cures. Right. No one's focusing on how do we fix our healthcare system. And so those are going to be some major issues that come up. And this is the first time that you have candidates coming out so early, yeah. announcing their run for president. So we have the mayor going to Iowa, we have a, a, a governor here who's very active nationally, um, working on some stuff on national level, and um, and it's exciting. It's exciting. You know, a lot of people hold their water to the to the get close to the time because you have to raise a lot of money, and campaign finance is something that we should be talking about as well. Uh, to make sure that the level the playing field is level in a way that everyone can participate. Mm-hmm. But the bottom line of electoral college, if you don't get online and vote, you can't make a difference. And, um, and President Obama was successful because the lines were around the corner. And I just remember um, uh, South Africa, for example, when they got the chance to vote, one man, one vote. They lined up for days and days and days, and the lines were miles and miles and miles. And people get online for twenty minutes and they start cursing at each other. So, you know, one of the thing is you have to look at the reality. If you want to fix this country, if you want to turn the battleship in the right direction, um, what we call justice and equality and fairness, you got to participate and you gotta be patient in the process and let's find ways to bring more technology into the process to help people get to the polls. Uh, we have now have early voting. So I'm very optimistic about what's going to happen in Washington and very optimistic what's happening in Albany. Uh, real criminal justice reform um, that is taking place. That, you know, we have so many people in mass and conservation uh, that should not be in this country. The only one that does that. So I'm excited about the level where we are now. Mm-hmm. And there'll probably be more candidates running for president and more candidates running for mayor. And, and that's a good thing. And that's a good thing. We want to see more people running for doing things in their own local townships, in their own communities. Get involved with a block association, join something. Yeah, yeah. Join the NAACP, it's $30 a year for adults, $10 for youth up to 21 years old. You can't beat that.
0: Well, here's what I will say, <laughs> the first 10 city college students that want to join the NAACP, I'll pay your initial membership, just come to uh, my shea. office. Ah, Right? So the, so the office is open, first 10. It just um, has
2: a hand clap. All right. <laughs>
0: Thank you. Uh, I just got the last question sign flashed at me, so I, wanna, I, I, wanted, I did want to talk to you before you li- uh, left about this institution of Black History Month. Um, you live and work in a neighborhood, an organization that really kind of lives black history every single day, um, and so you hardly need to be reminded of the need to commemorate or study or celebrate or memorialize the history and contributions of black people in the United States. So given all of that, what does what Black History Month mean to you and to your organization?
2: Well, I can, I can use my father as a good example okay. for that. He's a Korean War veteran. When he grew up in public school, he's a, he's a kid from New York, yeah. born and raised in Harlem Hospital. He went to school in the city. He wanted to be a cartoonist. And his teachers said, no, you can't be a cartoonist. Black kid, children, Negro children cannot be cartoonists. Yeah. He um, ultimately went to, um, he was in the drafted and joined the Air Force. And in the Air Force, he became a flight engineer and aircraft uh, instrument repairman. And he was assigned to the 17th Bombing Wing of the famous uh, James Doolittle Raid on Tokyo, that unit in Sao Paulo in, 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 um, in Busan, mm-hmm. and Pusan, um, Korea. And when he got out of the um, Air Force, um, he had so many interviews from all the different airline companies that were around at the time in 1960. Yeah. And when he walked in for the interview, they said, no, nope, you can't have the job, simply because he was black. Simply because he was black. He was overqualified for the positions and could not accept that job. So he went back to college and he got his license as a mechanical engineer. And he became one of the first uh, to draft men to african-american to get into the business mm-hmm. and later he's you know done some major projects like working at as the owners rep for the jake javis convention center where he was in charge of all of the different trades mm-hmm. um, the ellis allen which we 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 visit today the restoration of ellis allen and um, and but on a community level he was a a a member of the three veterans association better known as the harlem hell fighters who were uh, a regiment that came out of World War I, who had to fight with the French, but they could not fight with American soil here. Ironically, that unit uh, had to practice with broomsticks and mop sticks. You know where they practiced that? At Rikers Island. Wow. That's where they had their drills. And to see a prison there right now that we need to close, which was the scene of the first black regiment that they had to do their drills at Rikers Island, That's there's a reason cool. for that. And there's something that we need to look at. And, I, and, I, and I'm, sat, you know, I'm, I'm just happy that my dad, uh, he was a parade marshal for many, many years. And that's such a, a distinguished organization of so many hidden figures mm-hmm. that have contributed so much. And I want to give the students an, an opportunity so they should look at some of these institutions and, and Google and, 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 and look at some of the uh, amazing contributions of what these amazing people have done, like my dad. And I'm so proud of him. He started the first Head Start program and in the polo ground houses and later on got me to join the board as I got older Uh Um, and you know um, just an amazing person and you'll hear more about him as we celebrate his life um, next week. Well we
0: had a chance to talk about your father before the show and he sounds like a a, like an amazing man
2: and uh, you know Mr. 125th Street. Mr. 125th Street. I'll tell you a a really short story. Okay. 60 years ago, September 20th, Dr. King was um, was stabbed at Bloomstein's at a book signing 60 yeah. years ago, and Harlem saved the King when he was rushed to Harlem Hospital. My dad met him um, at Frank's Restaurant, which is no longer on the Hunt Twenty Street, but that was the meeting place of a lot of political meetings at the time, and he was having lunch with um, with um, Andrew Young, and at the time, Reverend Dr. Wyatt T. Walker, who was his chief of staff, and Ralph Abernathy, and my dad had a a chance to meet with Dot with uh, Martin Luther King, and it was a great story. They had a chance to really chat and see how things go. But you had to be involved back then. You had yeah. to, you know, everybody was on the same level at the time. Yeah. And um, and and given the fact that Dr. King was 29 years old when he was stabbed, and yeah. he was the calmest person there when they, said when they when the knife was sticking through his chest, and everybody was frantic. He said, "Everything's going to be all right." Yeah. Everything's going to be all right. And everything will be all right. Mm -hmm, mm
0: -hmm. Well, as I said, he sounded like a a, a fine man, and uh, we sure feel for you. We're all poor for the loss of your father. Thank you. Um, Well, on that note, we are out of time. Um, I'd like to thank you all for listening to From City to the World. A special thanks to our two guests, Dr. Vanessa Valdez, the new director of CCNY's Black Studies Program and her children's literature in Spanish class. Give yourself a round of applause out there for being in the audience uh, special thanks to Mr. Jeffrey Eaton the president of the NAACP Mid-Manhattan Bre- Branch the show is produced by Angela Hardin and yours truly Vince Boudreaux. thank you for listening everybody
2: thank you